Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. Um, it's good to see you today. If you're new here, welcome to you too. Everybody, if you're if you're new, welcome to you too. We like new people. We can, we want to welcome them, James. What's that? It's quite a conversation this morning. I don't know about you, I don't know about you, but, um, I'm the kind of person that when I get a gift for a person, I can't wait to give it to, to them. Is that anybody else? Like, I can't wait. As soon as I get something for someone, I can't keep it a secret anymore. I have, I've given Katie birthday gifts like weeks before her birthday <laughs> because I simply can't not do it. It's just impossible to wait all the time. I don't like surprises. So, now my wife, she likes surprises. This sometimes creates conflict because, I feel, if you have something for me, why, why would you wait? Right? I could be using that thing. I, we only have so much time, right? The clock is ticking. I need my stuff. <laughs> well, we're, we are, uh, we're talking about the open heaven, and specifically today, this, the heavenly principle of the gifts of the Holy Spirit today. All right, last week we had Kathy Thomas from Victory Christian Center with us. She came to speak prophetically and to share what she feels the Lord is speaking to the upper room and to the, the church as a whole. The words she spoke were encouraging. They were strengthening. There was a good time. Um, but that kind of, maybe, you know, that kind of focused prophetic time, maybe you aren't used to that. Or, or that is stretching for you. Or maybe you don't understand it. Or, or um, maybe you don't exactly know where the church lands when it comes to those sorts of things. So, so today I want to talk about that. And look at the the blessing of the whole of the spiritual gifts that God has given to each of us who have put our faith in Christ and have asked to be filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. And uh, there there are a lot of spiritual gifts that you can have. Right, there are five lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible. There's one in Romans 12. There are two in 1 Corinthians 12. There's one in Ephesians 4. There's one in 1 Peter 4. Every one of those, those lists is very different. All right, it's pretty clear none of them are the full list of this of the spiritual gifts. I think even if you put them all together, I'm not sure you still have all the gifts listed. Um, but here's the thing: most people have no problem with ninety percent of the spiritual gifts, right? Encouragement, and mercy, and service, and teaching those sorts of things. But there are ten percent of the gifts that are controversial in a church: the sign gifts, right? Prophecy, tongues, exhortation. Those sorts of things. So, so that's what I'm going to talk about today. And I'm going to, I just want to put my cards out on the table before we start. Um, I grew up in this church, the upper room, and I was, I was saved at a very early age. Uh, but there was a point in my kind of late teens, early twenties when I walked away from the Lord, mostly because I had a lot of questions about my faith, doubts, and I wanted to know how it worked. And it didn't necessarily jive in my head. And the way I really came back to faith is the Lord um, ignited my heart while answering many of the questions I had. Um, and so I'm very much passionate about the intellect. Our faith is an intellectual faith. It's, it's not a blind faith. 
Right? We're not crossing our fingers and hoping. It's rooted in history. It's tested. We're not blind faith people, yet there is this supernatural thing that occurs in the body of Christ and around the body of Christ. And oftentimes, those two things see, are seen as conflicting, right? And, and I am tired of this conflict between intellectual Christianity and spirit-led Christianity. I'm sick of it. Because it's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Paul or Peter or Mark. You never see this. Well, if you're going to be led by the Spirit, you're going to have to leave your brain behind. That's, that is garbage, right? It is always Spirit and what? Truth. Spirit and truth always go together. But many of those who kind of set themselves up as Christian intellectuals say, what, what people call the Holy Spirit might be demons trying to deceive people. That is actually one of the big arguments against the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit. Satan trying to deceive people. All right. I'm no scholar, but I know enough of my Bible to look at that argument and go, I don't think that the devil's in the business of seeing people become Christians. Right? I don't think that's on his agenda. The devil's not in the business of encouraging someone to seriously pursue Jesus Christ. The other reason that some people are adverse to this, to some degree, to the gifts of the Spirit is because there, there is an abuse in this area at times. And I'm not talking about anyone here, but the people that claim to be using the gifts are sometimes the strangest people around, aren't they? Can we be honest? I'm talking real life. But that, that's true, right? Sometimes the strangeness of the person giving a prophecy can keep us from embracing prophecy. And we sort of look at this kind of flamboyant excess, and we say, well, those, if those are the gifts of the Spirit, I don't want anything to do with it. And we actually end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Has anyone actually ever done that? <laughs> Why is that a saying? Where's the baby? I don't know. I gave it a bath, and then, uh, I don't know. It's an expression. I don't know. So, you know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying. So today, let's sort of take a step back and look at the gifts now in a biblical and balanced way, because I want to try to bring some clarity to them, because I know there's some of you who have these gifts, and you don't know how they necessarily fit here. You feel awkward, not sure what to do with them. There are others of you who think that's, it's all absurd. There are some of you who think you're kind of nervous about it. Yeah, I see it in the Bible, but it still makes me a little bit nervous. So today, let's let's let the Bible be the Bible, okay? So let's, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 13. And we'll start in verse 8. <clears throat> Here, lots of flipping. I like the flipping. It starts with uh, verse 8. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away, uh, put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. For the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. 
For anyone who speaks in tongues does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in tongues edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So there are a couple things I want, I want you to see right out of the gate here. The scripture starts with, love never fails. And then in 14.1, follow, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Love is always going to be there. Over and over, Paul never talks about the spiritual gifts without talking about love. Love is the driving force behind prophecy and the spiritual gifts always. And then it gets, gets into those list, lists of gifts, gifts, lists of gifts we're discussing this morning. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. When? When completeness comes. Here's where there's a divide in what people believe theologically. Okay, on one hand, some would say this, this is saying that prophecy and tongues and words of knowledge are necessary until scripture was completed. Some believe that's when completeness had come, okay? And now that we have the Bible, we have what is complete. So we no longer need these sign gifts. That system of belief is called cessationism. It believes that all the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased with the death of the last apostle. I have a ton of respect for, I love very much people that believe that. But I do strongly disagree with those that land in that camp. And, and let me show you. I don't think this is speaking of the Bible because in verse 12 it says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. When completeness comes, I'm no longer going to see dimly like in a mirror, but I'm going to see face to face. My litmus test is, that hasn't happened yet. I know Jesus, I love the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have not sat down face to face just yet. That day's coming, I'm looking forward to it, but we're not there yet. Then look at the next line. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully. Then I, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So when will prophecy cease? When will the words of knowledge, dreams, and visions? When is all that going to stop? At the canonization of Scripture? No, at the return of Jesus Christ. Do you know when we don't need prophecy anymore? When Jesus is here, we don't need prophecy anymore. You know when we're no longer going to need words of knowledge? When we no longer have need of that type of knowledge because all things have been made new in Christ's presence forever and ever. That's what the scripture is teaching. Yes, they will cease. They will cease not when we have our Bible. Because I have a Bible. And I've, I've worked that cat cover to cover. And I still would not dare claim I fully know as I am fully known. And I'm, I'm super excited about that day. But for now, we know in part. We see dimly. We walk by faith, not by sight. The gifts, the miraculous sign gifts of the Holy Spirit the ones that make some people uncomfortable and some of us dance for joy will cease at the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible specifically tells us that as believers, we are to be using spiritual gifts as we await the return of the Lord. We're, to, we're told in 1 Corinthians 1.17, or I'm sorry, 1.7, Therefore, do not lock any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. We should not lack any of the spiritual gifts as we await the return of Jesus Christ. So let's not be guilty of not opening our gifts, so to speak. The Bible says, don't quench the Spirit. It goes on to say, don't despise prophecy. 
To quench is the idea of extinguishing something. The idea of quenching is when God's Spirit is nudging you or leading or prompting you to say or do certain things, and you basically say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's quenching the Spirit. Now, and I'm going to hit this two or three times here today. What is the goal of spiritual gifts? What's the ultimate goal? Ephesians 4, 12 through 13 uh, tells us why we're given spiritual gifts. It says, to equip his body for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's a mouthful, right? But here's the purpose of spiritual gift. The whole purpose of all ministry is to create Christ-likeness in one another. When spiritual gifts are used correctly, the result is people growing in their Christ-likeness, growing into the likeness of Jesus. H.J. Cadbury was a professor of theology and Bible at, at, in Harvard in the mid-1900s. And he, he, one thing he loved to do, he loved finding students who had never read the Bible. And maybe they had heard of Jesus, but they never actually read the Bible. And he would find them, and he liked to just have them read about Jesus. Read the accounts of what he was like, what he said, what he did, and just get what he called their virgin reactions. And he found that their reactions were always the same. They were shocked. One of his students was explaining what he actually saw about Jesus when he read the Bible, and he said, Despite being absolutely approachable to the to the weakest and most broken people, he was completely fearless before the proud and corrupt. Despite being profoundly human and becoming weary and lonely and moved to joy and love and anger, we never see him moody. He continued, we never see him inconsistent. He is tender without being weak, strong without being harsh, humble without the slightest lack of confidence. He has conviction without intolerance, enthusiasm without fanaticism, Holiness without Phariseeism, passion without prejudice. This man alone never made a false step, never struck a jarring note. This is life at its highest. That is what spiritual gifts are supposed to produce. That's the point. When spiritual gifts are being used in a congregation, that's what results in the lives of the people. Life at its highest. Life at its fullest. Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual fruit is the goal. Spiritual gifts are the means. Now, fruit and gifts are not the same thing. So we don't mistake gifts for fruit. What do I mean? Spiritual fruit are character qualities. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The difference is fruit has to do with your being. Gifts are doing. So fruit is your character who you are. Gifts are skills in what you do. Fruit is, do you find yourself getting happier and happier no matter what the circumstances? More and more confident, even when things are bad. Not always up and down emotionally. That's fruit. Do you find yourself getting more humble and caring less about criticism and what people are saying about you because you're, you're so secure in God? That's fruit. Do you find your prayer life growing? Do you sense God's presence and his love? That's fruit. But here's what goes on. You can be empty inside, not really doing well with God and not growing in fruit, yet still get out there and use your gifts and help people and talk to people and encourage people or you minister to people and they go, oh, you're you're really helping me. 
Then you start to feel good about yourselves. You know what's going on? Charles Spurgeon, many years ago, wrote a book for his students. These were, these were ministry students. And he said, don't go into ministry to save your soul. And I remember thinking, what idiot would go into ministry if he wasn't already saved? Being an idiot at the time. Um, now I know what he meant. When you use spiritual gifts as a replacement for spiritual fruit, when you get busy as a way of covering up your own unhappiness and emptiness and your own lack of relationship with God, you can be big stuff in the church, but not healthy inside. This happens to church leaders all the time. They're very famous. They do a whole lot of good. They're actually changing a lot of people's lives. Why? Because their gifts are working. Yet inside, there's all kinds of problems, difficulties, sin, emptiness. They're covering up. They've mistaken gifts for fruit. The point is Christ-likeness in you. Fruit is the end goal. Gifts are the means. Okay, now. There's always implications to those things that you embrace, right? That's just the way it is in all of life. If you decide to embrace something, that oftentimes means you let go of something else. That's, it's the natural law. If you embrace marriage with someone, you let go of autonomy, right? You, saying yes to this over here means you say no to that thing over there oftentimes. The implication is, as a church that embraces spiritual gifts and specifically sign gifts, we ought to expect a certain amount of chaos in the church. To embrace spiritual gifts, supernatural gifts, is in some way give up natural control. Because a church that understands the theology of spiritual gifts realizes there will be ministry bubbling up all over the place from all sorts of people. So we can do things in an orderly way, but there will always be a certain chaos about a church if you really embrace the theology of spiritual gifts. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is not always neat and tidy. And a lot of churches don't like that. They want to be totally controlled from the top. They want to say, if, if we have something we want you to know, we people at the top, we'll tell you about it. You don't tell us, we'll tell you. That's against the theology of spiritual gifts. Let's go to Romans 12 and dig a little deeper into the spiritual gift of prophecy. Romans 12, 5, and 6. says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. The Old Testament definition of prophecy meant to bubble up or to lift up like a banner. The New Testament definition of prophecy is to speak for another. Does that mean what I'm doing right now, teaching the Bible, is that what the Bible means when it talks about prophecy? No. Because if that's true, then what do, you, what do we do with the gifts of teaching and the gift of preaching that are separate gifts listed in the sections of gifts in the Scripture to explain how people are gifted for the building up of the church and the glory of God? Prophecy is something else. Now, sometimes we think about a prophet as a person who declares the future. That's not necessarily true, though it, it could include that. There are Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel or Daniel and many others that we can mention that did foretell events 
uh, that were to take place. You go over to the New Testament and you find Agabus identified as a prophet and he foretold the fact that the Apostle Paul was going to be arrested. He was. So prophecy can be foretelling the future. But 1 Corinthians 4.13 says, But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So here's what prophecy accomplishes. There are three things listed there. First, first thing is strengthening. It builds us up. It's like moving the ball forward. One of the roles of, of prophetic words is to move us toward all God has for us in Jesus Christ. If you and I are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, if you and I, according to Romans 8, are being made more and more and more like Jesus Christ, one of the roles of the prophetic is to build us up into the image of Jesus Christ. It's upbuilding. The second thing is encouragement. And here's a good way to think of encouragement. If you've ever blown on a coal and you see it heat up and it starts to grow red, one of the roles of the prophetic is to blow on, a dying, on the dying ember so that they can become hot and burn again. That's one of the roles, to, to encourage, to bring fire back into someone. The third is comfort. A prophetic word can ease your worries or concerns. Um, when you become a parent, you all of a sudden have all kinds of new thoughts and feelings. And, and when my girls were babies, one of the things that Kate, Kate and I thought about, prayed about, maybe even fretted over, was that they would follow the Lord. Okay, There's a lot of things I want for my kids. At the top of the list is that they would love Jesus and wholeheartedly run after him. Okay, Good job, secondary. Married or not, secondary. Jesus lover, first. Okay, So Kate and I would talk about that and pray about that. And during that time, Katie went to a woman's conference. And at the conference, she was given a prophetic word that our girls, and the woman didn't know that we had girls at the time, uh, but she said that our girls would follow the Lord all their lives and be in ministry together. That is a simple word that has brought me more comfort than can be measured, right? Strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So let's look at what's not there. If you feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to utter everyone's sins against them, that is not the gift of prophecy. Okay? Are you saying we shouldn't correct sin we see? No, you absolutely should, and the Bible gives you a clear pathway to do that in Matthew 18. It does not include prophecy. The Bible also says later in 1 Corinthians, uh, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder but peace. That means when a gift of the Spirit is operating through you, it can happen in a very natural way. It does not have to be showy. You can speak the word of the Lord conversationally, to someone. You don't have to say, thus saith the Lord, or anything like that. Also, although we see that the gift of prophecy is a good gift, given to us by God for upbuilding and encouragement and comfort, it's not God's primary vehicle, primary vehicle in which he grants us the wisdom to live our lives from day to day. And that might sound like I'm being harsh or dismissive or something, but hear what I'm saying. We have the wisdom of God through the Holy Spirit and the Bible. So we don't have to wait for someone to give us a prophetic word so that we can make decisions. In fact, the Apostle Paul will rebuke the church in Corinth for living that way. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 5, I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? 
He's saying we should be able to walk in wisdom that is not always informed by the supernatural. I had a dream last night, or this brother kind of confirmed, but rather the word of God itself should inform a type of wisdom that drives your behavior. I think there are people that can get stuck because they're always looking for a supernatural word, waiting. But you don't necessarily need a word to do what the Bible has told you to do. Love your neighbor, feed the hungry, clothe the poor, heal the sick. I think people can get stuck trying to discover God's will for their lives because they're waiting. You may not believe me, but I know God's will for your life. It is to love your neighbor, feed the hungry, clothe the poor, heal the sick. Yes, but should I be a lawyer or a missionary? Well, just pick one and love your neighbor, feed the hungry, clothe the poor, heal the sick. Well, I don't know whether I should get married or not. Well, do you want to be married? Yeah. Then get married and feed the hungry, clothe the poor, heal the sick. He who finds his wife finds what is good. There, there, there you go in the word of God. Go. If you have a gift of singleness, praise God. Work hard with your extra hours pursuing God. It's a good right thing for us to seek jobs and have jobs. Go. You don't need some prophetic word about whether or not you're supposed to love and serve your wife. You don't need some prophetic word about how to live either with stingy hands or, or as a generous person. Our God is an ever-speaking God, and he gives us wisdom when we ask for it, whether through the Bible or through prophetic revelation. If prophecy, tongues, words of knowledge, these things still exist and are still for the church, for the building up of the body into all God has for us in Jesus Christ, how do we approach them? Here's, here's the first one. With humility. Why humility? Again, I want you to look back. First Corinthians 13, it says, well, you don't, you don't even have to turn there, but we read this, that, that for now we're like children. What are, what are children like? Let's talk about what children are like. They're, I don't know if there's any kids in here. But you're most, one, they're clumsy. Two, they don't remember so well. This is the reason for us to walk in humility in the words we believe we've been given by God. We're like children. I had to tell my daughter four to six times yesterday to find her shoes. The first time, she literally left. She walked upstairs. I don't know what happened. When she got there, she turned around, came back down without socks or shoes. I was like, hey, what are you doing, hon? She's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> what did I tell you to do? I don't remember. Okay, I want you to go upstairs. I want you to put your socks on. Then I want you to come back down so we can leave. Okay, she disappears. Came back with a stuffed animal. No socks. So I'm like, okay, listen, I need you to tell me what you heard me tell you to go get upstairs, because I'm pretty sure I said socks, not Owly the stuffy, right? Maybe some of you think I'm a bad father. The fact that she's breathing today is a victory, but this, this is what kids are like. I don't care if you're mom or dad of the year, this is what children are like. The Bible says we're like children when it comes to prophecy. Children should never walk with a swagger. They just shouldn't. You better file that thus saith the Lord stuff. You better always walk in a humility that says, I believe that maybe the Lord is saying this. I have tested against the word of God and I would like for you to consider. I felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to share this with you. So we walk in humility. 
And 1 Corinthians 14.40 says we do things decently and in order. I was recently reading about a church in the Northeast, a very charismatic church, but a Bible-believing church, and they have prophecy mics in the aisle. At any point during the worship, during singing, someone can come up to the mic and they can give a word. And here's what's great about that. In their sound booth, they have a big red button that is there to shut down those mics at any moment. So how awesome is that? If a guy came up and grabbed a mic and was like, the Lord wanted me to tell all you wicked sons of beep, you know, he's gone. Cut off. That's not happening. I look at that and I kind of go, I don't think they're wrong for doing that. I just think we're not going to put prophecy mics out. You can try to get one of these mics without running a past administrator for this during the service. You might get tased, but you'll have a whole other experience of the Holy Spirit doing it that way. So how, how then do we do things in an orderly way since we do believe this is a gift? Here's how we would encourage you. One, if you have the gift of prophecy, I would encourage you to use that gift here and let the body affirm it in you. So as, as you're praying, if you feel like you have been given a word for someone, God has shown you a picture, God has given you a vision, that I would encourage you to approach that person. And we've seen it's not... I see the sin in your life. That's not a prophetic word. All right? Or maybe you feel as though you've been given a word for the whole church, uh, like a prophetic word on the direction of the church. I do, I do think that happens. Here's how I'd, I, w- I would encourage you. Ter- tell your direct mentor or the leader of your fellowship group or come talk to me. If you come up to me after the service and say, I just really feel the Holy Spirit has given me a word for the church. I don't know what to do with that. I'm going to ask you to do one thing. If you will write the word out, if you will write that dream out, if you will write that vision out and give it to us, we will seriously pray over it. Consider it and decide what to do with it. And sometimes it has just been, thank you very much, that was an encouraging word. Other times it has found its way into a, a weekend message. Uh, other times it, is, it has found its, its way simply into an edification of the person who brought the dream or vision. In thanking them for being obedient, because it always feels weird to step out in, in faith in those areas. The Bible says, you want to see the manifestation of the Spirit? You seek the building up of the body, which occurs best when there is great unity. Ephesians 4, 3-8 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. In ancient times, if a king was in a city and there was an enemy coming to invade and enslave everyone, the king would go out and fight the enemy. If he won, he would return triumphant. He would go back to his throne. He would ascend his throne and sit down so his presence was again in the midst of the people, and he would give out gifts. He would take the riches he'd won in victory, and he would give them to the people of the city. Now in Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen, which is what Paul is quoting here, Uh, The psalmist was looking at the fact that David the king brought the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the 
presence of God into Jerusalem, ascended Mount Zion, which is the place in Jerusalem where the tabernacle was, and brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. The reason this whole psalm is celebrating that is because God had brought the people out of slavery. He had defeated Egypt, and he brought them out of captivity. Now God was ascending his throne, and he was now present in the midst of of his people in the tabernacle. The gifts of that triumph were the milk and honey of the promised land. So that's what the psalmist is talking about. But listen, Paul reads the psalm about David bringing the ark in the presence of God and ascending and gifts and the triumph of God over oppression. And suddenly Paul realizes God was not done. When that was over, God was not done. God had a bigger enemy to defeat, sin and death. God the king had a way of dwelling in the midst of his people that was better than the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Tabernacle. God had even better spiritual gifts to give. And do you know what, ha- what happened? Here's how God did it. Jesus Christ descended. He descended from heaven to earth. He descended from honor and glory to rejection and torture and death. Why? When he went to the cross, you know what he was doing? He was defeating the ultimate Egypt, sin and death. He was getting pardon for our sins so the Holy Spirit could actually come into our lives because our sins were atoned for. So the presence of God could come into our midst and we could get the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, as we end, I would encourage you to be praying into what was declared last week. Increased glory in the church. Uh, an invasion of people from the world coming into the church to find Jesus? An invasion of people from the church going into the world to share Jesus? And uh, the coming of a new normal. Kathy talked about that. Which is, it's the Holy Spirit moving more powerfully and more often in ways that have not been normal to us necessarily. And you can go back and listen to last week's word on the Upper Room website if you need reminded or encouraged again. We believe God speaks today, presently, to his church, and that his goal is that his kingdom will come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us spiritual gifts. We pray that we would embrace them in a greater way, that we would love the wonderful chaos of spiritual gifts. Lord, we want to use our gifts to bear spiritual fruit in people's lives. And we ask that you would help us to never forget that. We want to see Christ-likeness grow in our own hearts and in the hearts of people around us. Make us a church in which that happens. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.